0: Curriculum Associates presents Extraordinary Educators with hosts Sari LaBaris and Danielle Sullivan. Get ready to hear tips, best practices, and success stories to improve your teaching, leadership, and drive student learning.
1: We're here for you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Extraordinary Educators Podcast. My name is Danielle. And I'm Sari, and this week we are joined by one of our wonderful colleagues,
0: Glendalise Martinez. So she is a national director at Curriculum Associates, and she's been on the podcast before. And we are really excited to talk to her about some new research that she's been doing. So Danielle, do you want to kind of give an overview about the new hot topic that Glendalise
1: is digging into? Yeah, she's been really researching about oral reading fluency and how language or uh, students' native languages impact that and the way they pronunciate words and educator uh, giving real feedback and and what that does for students' psyche, confidence, as well as just oral reading fluency. It was It's a really interesting perspective when thinking about oral reading fluency, because I know a lot of educators at the beginning of the year are, are assessing oral reading fluency in the younger grade. So it's just an interesting way to make sure that you are uh, validating your students and not just cutting them off because of a way they're they're pronouncing words
0: right thinking of the impact of your teacher actions for sure so here is our mm-hmm. conversation with glendalees enjoy welcome back to the podcast Glendalise. we are so excited you are here if you can just start off introducing yourself to our listeners please that would be great sure i am Glendalise martinez i'm a national
2: director at curriculum associates and a long time educator in my
1: opinion i still teach all the time that's what we do well, I, yes, I totally agree with that. And so you've been doing some interesting research this summer. I'd love for you to talk, talk to us about it.
2: Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about the way that, that people pronounce words, the way that we learn language. Obviously, with the science of reading, there's been a a high focus on foundational reading skills and and what we expect children to learn and how they learn the code of the English language in the United States, for example. But it's given me a little bit of pause when it comes to English learners in particular, because if a child comes into our classrooms not having uh, been speaking English at home as their home language and uh, they're speaking a different language, in my case, I'm going to use Spanish as an example, because that's my home language. There are just words and sounds that don't exist in Spanish that exist in English and vice versa, right? So for example, my mom, who has been living in the United States since she was 14 years old, will never, ever, ever, ever say a word that starts with S without an E in front of it, right? So it's always a spaghetti. It's always a state. You know, there's never, it's never say, it's never spaghetti because that was not a sound that she was accustomed to in Spanish. And even though she knows English and she writes English and she can read English and she understands and comprehends and all the ends that uh, we have to do in English, she doesn't have that sound. Um, And, and, and although she's practiced it, it's just something that does not roll off the tongue for lack of a better phrase here. Right. So that's sort of what I've been thinking about. Um, so I started to read up on it, uh, found a young, a young man, uh, who has a, he has, a am not going to call it a pod. He does have a podcast actually. I haven't listened to his podcast, but he does TikTok. He does, um, he does Instagram and it's, and it's escaping me his name right now. And it'll come to me later on as we talk, but One of the things that he highlighted was that there are just sounds that if we don't expose children to particular sounds by the time they're three, typically it's super difficult for them to learn the sound. Now, we look at actors, for example, when actors have to take on a different accent, I know you all know this, they get coaches to coach them how to speak a particular language. And it takes a ton of practice. You know, they're getting that, that, that. Practice all the time from someone, right? For them to be able to make the sound, and even then, I think if you're if you're a native speaker of the language that you hear a second language learner of that language speak, you can always tell when someone isn't necessarily a native speaker of that language, or it takes a really long time for them to get that accent. So I've been thinking about that and how we apply that to oral reading fluency specifically, and what the implications are for students when. We have them read oral reading fluency passages, and I couldn't even say oral reading fluency just now, y'all heard that. When we have them read oral reading fluency passages out loud and we identify a sound that they did not make and whether or not that evaluation is gonna tell a teacher, hey, that student can't read. That is where the rubber meets the road because me, for example, I can read Portuguese, I can read French, I can read Italian, but I cannot speak any of those languages. It is a terrible sight and a horrible sound when I try to make those sounds come out of my mouth. It's just not a language. Those aren't languages that I'm familiar with, but I can read those languages and I can understand what I'm reading. So those are things that I've been um, researching and talking to folks about because we, we have to start to be cognizant as educators about how we evaluate children and and what we say about those children when it comes to their reading capabilities based off of how they sound, essentially. And I hope that made
1: sense. Oh, it made loads of sense. So for our listeners... What are some things like actionable steps they can take if this is something if they're if they're working with students um, that have English as a second language, like what are some things they can start to think about or or resources that they can go to to help them be more aware of what you're talking about?
2: Well, we de- I, it, we when you look at the research, um, when you look at, for example, when we're teaching children uh, phonics, for example. Corrective feedback is necessary. We have to give children corrective feedback. But my, my question has been around how we give corrective feedback. I, uh, I could read Dr. Anita Archer and I can read uh, Lisa Delpit. And they both tell us we have to give corrective feedback when students are speaking. But how we give corrective feedback is really, really important. Uh, I would not recommend that we immediately in, in, interrupt the student as they're reading. Right. So if I mispronounce something, but I'm not done with my sentence, I don't want to interrupt the child in the middle of that sentence. Right. Because then we're messing with their fluency. And then if we mess with this child's fluency and we're interrupting a child's fluency, then what we're doing is creating a student who's going to end up having reading issues. Like we're creating a student who isn't able to fluently read because we're constantly interrupting their practice of reading, Now, once a child finishes a sentence, then I would say, okay, let's go back and look at, did you want, first, did you understand what you just read? Tell me what you just read. Because I think that the other part of when we do oral reading fluency that we forget um, to ask is, did you understand, right? We need to reinforce the notion that reading is a meaning-making process for our students. So that once they understand that they're supposed to make meaning from what they're reading, then we can say, all right, now, You've mispronounced the word nation. Let me tell you, let's point to the word nation. Let's pronounce this word nation. If we have to decode the word nation, we can do that, right? But um those are things that uh, that I think we need to be cognizant of because when we overcorrect students and when we interrupt students, several things happen. Like we're interrupting their process. We're not, and then when we don't ask them whether or not they understood, we're not, we're not telling them, hey, you're supposed to make meaning from these things that you're reading. So then they have comprehension issues. So there are several things. I I was talking about this at one of our conferences and I had an educator come up to me afterward and said, oh my gosh, this is like so basic in terms of like what we should have been doing. I'm going to go back. She said, I've been doing this, but I don't know if my teachers have been doing this. So she wanted to go back and have that conversation with her educators to make sure that students were understanding that yes they need to be fluent that yes it's meeting making but also um that we are going to correct them when appropriate right um and that doesn't mean that I'm that I'm advocating for us to not correct students that is not what I'm doing I just want to make sure that that's out there so that people aren't saying oh my gosh she's crazy I'm not <laughs> I'm just saying <laughs> I'm what I'm what I'm advocating for is for us to be thoughtful about the way that we correct students and also If we have students who speak a a, a different language than English at home, we have to be aware of what those sounds are in their home languages, right? So if you're a teacher in a school that has a high number of Arabic students, then you're gonna know that there are just certain sounds that don't exist in Arabic, or Arabic speaking students, excuse me. There are gonna be sounds that don't exist in Arabic. If you have a school that has a high number of Spanish speaking students, unless those kids come from Spain, the TH sound is not something that is natural for those Spanish speaking students. So we have to take some time to teach that TH sound and it may never come. And that's something that teachers need to be okay with as long as the child understands what it is that they're reading and they've made meaning and they know how to spell those words, right? And that's, I mean, spelling is a whole other conversation so we're not gonna do that today. But those those are things that we have to keep in mind. Um, I think it's time uh, that as educators that we think about the impact of what we say to students can be long lasting for them. If we tell a child, you're amazing, they're going to say, oh yes, I'm amazing. But if we tell a child, listen, you're not doing this well, or you're really struggling to read, that child is going to think that they're struggling to read forever when that might not be the case, it might be that they're struggling to pronounce, which is a separate thing from reading, right? So we have to be really smart about that as educators.
0: You just shared so much insight and best practices and practical advice. And thank you for all of that. I have so many thoughts, but I think something you just said really stood out to me is like really thinking about what's the end goal here? Like, is it for our students to sound exactly like I sound? No, it's so that they understand what they read. Right. And so also just thinking about the psychology of it, like you said, if you're overcorrecting someone over and over, it's like, imagine how that would feel, you know, that kid is going to totally shut down and I wouldn't blame them. Like they wouldn't probably want to read out loud after constantly being interrupted or, or take a chance or, or have a challenge. And so I love kind of the framework that you provided, like after they read, you know, telling them some, something positive first, then pointing to the word saying, this is how it's pronounced, let's try again, rather than, you know, immediately interrupting, jumping to them, making them do it. It's like, that's that's so confusing. And so um, just really being thoughtful about how we're correcting them is, is so, so helpful.
2: There's so much research, sorry, around what happens to a child when you overcorrect, to a person, not just the child, but when right, you overcorrect. Right. Like, just imagine if you were speaking to someone and every- two seconds, three seconds, they stop and they're like, nope, sorry, nope, nope. And what ends up happening is that in your mind, you start correcting yourself or trying to correct yourself to the point where you can't speak. Like, when I'm around people, because, okay, in Dominican Republic we speak a particular, I'm not even going to call it a dialect, because I don't want to call it a dialectical. It's Dominican Spanish. Like, we speak Spanish in Dominican Republic. That sounds like people from Dominican Republic. In some cases, it's not it's not your, your academic Spanish. That's what I'm going to say. It's not academic Spanish. There's nothing wrong with the way that we speak Spanish other than the fact that it's not academic, but that's how we communicate in Dominican Republic. When I get around people who speak academic Spanish, I choke up. I do because I know that I cut my S's off. I know that my R's sound like L's sometimes. It's just what I do. It's what I've, what I've told myself I have to do when I'm around people who speak in academic Spanish. Um, and then I'm correcting myself in my head to the point where I can't speak, which is silly. I've been speaking Spanish since I was old enough to talk, since I started it was, you know, my first language. So um it's just one of those things that, you know, we we don't want to have children so afraid to speak that they they actually interrupt their learning process. And that's really what happens when we when
1: we overcorrect. And yeah. <laughs> just, just, just yes for a minute, right? I mean, for all of it, like, it's just, if educators, we appreciate educators so much, but it's just simply awareness, I think is helpful. Awareness around this, awareness around, and even, even the language that they use for a lot of academics saying, you know, you're smart versus we're, this is a learning environment. We're all in it. We're all in it together. We're all figuring it out. Like, it's just it's a, it's a, it's a daily, just consistent practice. So we appreciate you being on the podcast. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. All right, Glendalee.
0: So before we wrap up, we have a new segment called Ask an Extraordinary Educator where folks write in and we have a question for you to answer today. Are you ready? (laughs) Yes. Awesome. All right, here we go. Hello, Extraordinary Educator podcast. I'm loving the season and all of the interviews. Thank you. My question for you is about science of reading. This may come as a surprise since I'm a teacher, but I keep seeing this phrase over and over. And truth is, I don't really understand what it means. There are so many buzzwords in our space right now and Google is too overwhelming. What is the science of reading? Where can I learn more without spending too much time or going down a rabbit hole? Thank you, thank you, thank you. From a teacher wondering what a buzzword really means.
2: Man, okay, so trying to answer that question in a really easy way. First starters, I think if you want to get a really high level understanding of what the science of reading is, just Google the Reading League and they have like three videos that are really short that you can watch um, to get a high level understanding of the science of reading. But essentially what the science of reading is, is a return to a scientifically Researched and backed approach to teaching foundational skills to students. And what that means is that we are focusing on phonics and and phonological awareness for our students at the early grade level. So, this is a really loaded question, y'all. So, I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. For the past 20 years, we've focused on whole language, which means that we've given students. words and pictures and we've allowed for students to make inferences for from what they see to apply those to words and then there's a lot of there has been like a lot of memorization and essentially what we call sight words and now are called high frequency words which are the words that we see a lot in the english language that have high utility right so That is the way that the approach of reading happened before, where we taught these words and then eventually students would learn to read because there's like a lot of, let the kids try to figure out and then we guide them into reading. When it comes to the science of reading, the approach is that we teach students letters, how letters come together to make words, which is phonics, and then how sounds and letters come together, which is phonological awareness, right? So a lot of people will say like, Phonological awareness is what we do in the dark. In other words, if I close my eyes and I heard the words, we know that the sounds that uh, we hear are going to make up a word that's phonological awareness. And then what I can see, which is the letters that we put together, that's the phonics. So um, that's essentially what the science of reading is. We're focusing on that. And then they've added this extra layer of knowledge building, which means that we take what students know um, from the world and then we... We teach that, and then we build on that knowledge as we teach the, the science of reading or those foundational skills so that students are actually grounded in things that they know as they're learning this new code of language. Now, we talk about code when it comes to computers and how we write code. Just think about code of the English language that way. Like you're, you're learning a code, a, a form of communication, which is reading and speaking and listening in the
1: English language. And I hope that was not two in the weeds. Yeah, um, it's it's great. I mean, it. thank you though. No, it wasn't two in the weeds at all. And I think it's also important to just know that our brains aren't wired for language. Like we yeah. are more wired for mathematical concepts. So you actually really, I mean, the science of reading is really knowing that brains need to be taught how yeah. to decode and, and, and what you just, you actually explain phonological awareness and phonics better than I've heard it ever so thank you for that That that's very helpful I've had a lot of tutoring yeah (laughs) promise
0: that was not all
1: me I've had a lot of a lot of tutoring well isn't that education right like it's just kind of sharing and talking and tutoring and then getting your own understanding which is what we're talking about in the science of reading it's listening and 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 coding and all of it well thank you thank you thank you we really appreciate you um being here but what? where else can they find us, Sari? What's, what's the stitch? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, thanks again, Glenda Lewis. We love, we love chatting with you. So that is it for today's episode. You can leave us a review where you listen to podcasts as it really helps us reach more educators. Follow us on Twitter at Curriculum and on Instagram at My IReady. And if you have feedback, a topic of interest, or want to be a guest, you can email extraordinaryeducators at cainc.com. This is about you. We are here for
1: you. So until we meet again, be you, be true, be extraordinary. The Extraordinary Educators podcast is produced by Curriculum Associates. Editing by Danielle Sullivan. Social media by At City Hannon. Guest booking by Sari Liberas. Music by Mark Bernstein. This podcast is copyrighted material
0: and intellectual property of Curriculum Associates. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Curriculum Associates and on Instagram at MyIready and send your emails to extraordinaryeducators at com.